Today, uh, we come, as has been noted, to the last of our series on the different kinds of psalms. There's 150 of them. They're all good. We could go on and on and on, but this is it for now. And uh, we've also heard uh, wonderfully explained the Psalms of Lament, about one-third of the Psalter consists of Psalms of Lament. So this whole service has been built around this theme, and I hope to show you why that's appropriate, why it's not just a downer um, Sunday. Uh, But uh, here is a wonderful quote from Todd Billings, who's a professor of Reformed theology at Western Seminary, a wonderful scholar, a a wonderful person, and um, he has written a book out of his own experience of a diagnosis several years ago of multiple myeloma, an uncurable cancer. Uh, He's managed so far uh, to keep going uh, thanks to a bone marrow transplant, but he's in the midst of this journey And he wrote a book that he called Rejoicing in Lament, Wrestling with Incurable Cancer and Life in Christ. This is what he wrote. Our affections need to become agile and multidimensional through being reshaped by God through the Psalms. Let us grieve and protest and trust and praise together before the Lord. The Psalms give us a way to pray in many keys, major and minor, while directing us to the source of our true hope, the Lord and his promises. The apostle says in Romans 8 that we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with sighs and groans too deep for words. And that's true, wonderfully true, when you can't come up with the words. But he also, the Spirit, teaches us words to use through the Psalms, especially the Psalms of Lament. So we want to think together and work through one of the greatest of those Psalms today, Psalm 13. We'll listen as Brian reads it. Hear the word of the Lord. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of of my habits, occasionally annoying to Betty Jo, all right, usually annoying to Betty Jo, In the morning, I like to hum or whistle sometimes or sing old gospel hymns. 
Uh, and I don't know why they just come to me out of my childhood. She knows them too. Uh, we kind of were raised in similar circumstances in different Reformed churches in different cities. Um, but uh, they'll, they'll come to me and I'll quote them. So, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my sin rolled away, it was there by faith I've been redeemed and now I'm so happy all the day. Uh, but we're not, are we? That's not true. We're not happy all the day just because we're Christians. So uh, lament, I want to start by saying some things that it isn't or it's not merely these things. The way we normally as human beings respond to loss because that's really what we're talking about. All the evils in the world, I don't have to recite them again. Our, our prayer kind of did that for us, didn't it? Our prayers this morning. I don't know if, if you reacted the way I did, but I found myself offering these things back to God over and over. Troubles in our world, sort of cosmic troubles. Troubles in our nation in our society and culture, troubles in our own lives, our personal lives. These evils that rob us of things, the experience of loss, a universal human experience. If you haven't, well, we've all experienced it. Maybe we're too young to put it into words, to articulate it, but that's what it is. Because we lose things along the way, little deaths, that visit us before the big death at the end, the ultimate loss. The death of a friendship, maybe. The death of a relationship. The death of a partner. The death of a parent. The death of a child. The death of a career. The death of a hope, of a dream. So how do we respond? Well, we respond by grieving makes us sad, and sad is okay. Uh, I, I just greeted somebody before the service, a friend from the congregation here, I said, how you doing? And he said, fine. How are you doing? And I said, fine. And then I said, but we really don't want to know, do we? <laughs> that, um, that's a social convention. And it, we need social conventions. It sort of greases the wheels of society. So you don't really want to know how that person is doing when you ask them, for, and they don't really want to tell you anyway, because it would take uh, too long. It might be too painful. It'd be awkward. But we can tell God how we're feeling. And one of the roles that the Psalms of Lament play is to authorize us in expressing anything and everything to God, just pour it out, as Paul was saying earlier in the service. So sorrow is real because loss is real. Here's another one I was thinking about during the week as I was thinking about this sermon. Come ye, come ye disconsolate, where e'er ye languish. Do you know this one? <laughs> I love this one, it's an old one. Come ye disconsolate, where'er ye languish. Come to the mercy seat, fervently kneel. Here, bring your broken hearts. Here, bring your anguish. 
Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. I believe that. You know what? I believe that. That ultimately every sorrow and loss that we have experienced will be healed fully and completely and forever and made up to us. He'll restore the years that the locust devoured. But I also believe this. Earth has many sorrows that earth cannot heal. Wounds that we will carry with us, perhaps scarred over, <laughs> but wounds nevertheless, until we get to heaven. You know, the Lord has promised to, to dry every tear from our eyes, but only in the new creation the new Jerusalem. So yes, we grieve, not as others who have no hope, says the apostle, but we grieve. And yet lament is more than just grieving or mourning because lament is a corporate act into which the Psalms invite us all, regardless of how we may be feeling. I mean, you may be feeling quite chipper today, uh, you've got no secret sorrows that you're aware of. And nevertheless, the Lord invites us to lament together because this is a corporate act of worship. Here's the second thing. Lament is more than just expressing our anger at the way things are. Venting. Remember Job's wife, Job was mentioned earlier, uh, Job's wife urged him to curse God and die. Look at, look at where you are. Look at this situation. Why don't you just curse God and, and die? And Job came close. He cursed the day he was born. He cursed the man who ever came to tell his father, you have had a son. He wished he had been stillborn and never experienced the pain that had come over him. But he didn't curse God. So it's okay, it's okay to curse a little bit, I guess. <laughs> go ahead. Uh, go ahead and vent. God can take it. He's a big boy. <laughs> but lament, we said, is an act of worship. So ultimately it transcends anger. And thirdly, lament is not mere resignation, which is how, in the end, many people deal with their loss, their sorrow, uh, the, grief, the grief that has afflicted, just sort of resignation, you know, <sighs> what are you going to do? Put up with it. It is what it is. It is what it is. This too shall pass. That was one of Abraham Lincoln's favorite sayings. Did you know that? He loved that. He was a Stoic, more than a Christian, sadly. In fact, he gave a speech before he hit the world stage, really. Gave a speech to a, a large uh, audience, and in it he gave some advice for how to get ahead, maybe for how to get through life. And he quoted 
that old saying, this too shall pass. And then he added, um, what a chastisement in the hour of glory and what a consolation in the time of suffering. This too shall pass. So if you're on top, careful, this too shall pass. If you're down in the depths, hang on, this too shall pass. Or maybe you're of an optimistic bench, bent and you can sing with little orphan Annie, the sun will come out tomorrow. <laughs> Bet your bottom dollar, there'll be blue skies. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. So resignation, you know, what are you gonna, you shrug your shoulders. And that may be a, a fair coping mechanism, I'm not knocking it, but it's not biblical lament. What is then biblical lament? And the psalmist shows us uh, the, the way it progresses. Actually, Paul has already given this sermon uh, earlier, uh, so I don't have to say a whole lot here, but it begins with a question which is actually a complaint. How long, O oh Lord, notice this, in the first two verses of Psalm 13, this, this great expression of biblical lament, he repeats the question four times. How long, how long, how long, how long? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And the questions express uh, between them a kind of cry or protest against the way things are. This just isn't right, says the psalmist. In fact, in an... In a remarkable way, he inverts the great Old Testament confessions of faith in God. Namely, that God will never forget us. I will never leave you or forsake you. How can I forget you? I've, I've engraved you in the palm of my hands. And the psalmist says, will you forget me forever? All that's gone out the window because it feels like he's alone now and forgotten by God. The great blessing which Aaron was given to pronounce over the congregation, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. In other words, break out in a big smile when he looks at you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the psalmist says, you've turned away from me. You're not, look, you're not even looking at me, let alone smiling at me. How long will you hide your face from me? How, how long is this going to go on? Why? Why are you doing this to me? And you see that the cry, uh, the, uh, or the, the uh, questions, the, the protest, actually presupposes the goodness of God. because it suggests that, uh, I, I quoted a line from Neil Planinga earlier in the outline, which I kind of blew past, but lament, this is a great definition, lament is an act of faith. 
to expand that, lament is the way faith responds to evil and loss. So this questioning, which it, it presupposes the goodness of God and it suggests that this is not the way it's supposed to be. Again, to quote Neil Plantinga, not the way it's supposed to be. These things don't belong in God's good creation. This is all part of the fallenness of the world and of us as flawed, sinful, stumbling, broken people. And it shouldn't be. Cancer's not just bad, it's wrong. Dementia's not just sad, it's wrong to rob creatures made in God's image of health and strength and vitality and youth and memory. Shouldn't be. So we cry out. If, if there were no God, th this is the thing that always gets me. Everybody feels this way, even those who don't believe in God. But what, why should they feel that way? If you don't believe in a good God, why isn't cancer just part of, uh, you, know, you know, genes and cells get disrupted and then they begin to multiply wildly and that's just the way it is. Back to resignation, what are you gonna do? Yeah, people kill each other and they lie and they manipulate and they steal. But, you know, it's evolution. We're, we're kind of along the... You know, we wrestle with the problem of evil, the goodness of God in the face of all this suffering. Atheists need to wrestle a little bit more with the problem of good. Why should things be any different if God is not good? So, the question, which is actually a complaint, and then the cry which is actually a demand. And that comes in uh, verses three and, three and four. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. So it's a cry for God, a demand essentially for God to act. Do something. Look, see what's going on here. My enemy, he's got the upper hand and I want you to think of that enemy and let, just meditate on that and let it expand outward because it's not just the personal enemy that the psalmist may have been talking about. Behind all our enemies is the enemy. The enemy. Who works through our own fallenness, our own nature, who works in circumstances around it, who's pushing us down and pushing us down and we just say, God, you gotta do something here. I'm running out of time. And if I die, then what? See, he didn't, the psalmist didn't have the clear hope for the future that we have. So it's a cry to God, to act. And nowhere does this come more dramatically than in Psalm 74. 
Psalm 74, you talk about expressing your anger to God, your frustration. The psalmist begins in Psalm 74, this is sometime during the exile, obviously, when Jerusalem's been destroyed and the temple has been utterly ruined. And before it was burned, it was ransacked. And the psalmist says, have you seen what these people have done to your sanctuary? They came in with axes and they just swung them left and right and they destroyed everything. And here we are. And then the psalmist says, uh, how long, O Lord, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. I, I, I love that image. You know, he's, he's picturing God with hands, okay, this is metaphor. He's picturing God robed as ancient people would have been robed with some kind of garment draped over him and his hands are kind of in the garment. So we would say in modern terms, God, take your hands out of your pockets, will you? And come and fix this. And this cry for action implies God's power. So God's goodness, but also God's power. We do not, uh, as biblical Christians rooted in the scriptures, especially in the reformed faith and its understanding of the scriptures, we do not subscribe to a weak God theory. We do not explain all the evils and sorrows of the world and of our lives by saying, well, God couldn't help it. You know, he's kind of not as strong as he might be. He somehow or other. No. We leave, we leave it in mystery. We leave all these questions in mystery. God is good. God is almighty. In fact, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, right? And then we leave it in mystery. We don't understand the ways of God. But we know this. In a way the psalmist could never have imagined, God responded to his cry. He didn't just take his hands out of his pockets, out of the folds of his garment. He laid the garment of his glory aside and he clothed himself in a human nature and he allowed himself to experience all the sufferings that we experience, all the loss, all the pain, including being mocked and bullied and brutalized and nailed to a piece of wood and stuck on a tree for us. That's why we trust in God, because he knows and he understands and he's been through it all, every last bit of it, up to and including the grave.
So we trust, and that's where the psalm ends, we trust. We trust in his unfailing love. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Notice there's no indication that the psalmist's perspective has shifted. It's not that he's looking back. As far as we can tell, he's still in the middle of it. But he, he remembers, I have trusted in your love in the past and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation in the future. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Trust in the past, singing in the future, and singing right now in the present. I mentioned a moment ago the cross. We believe that God will ultimately hear and respond to our cries because of what he's done in the past. Calvin, John Calvin, has a wonderful little note uh, in his commentary on Matthew 27, which is the account of the crucifixion. Verse 43 uh, describes some of the ways that the crowd mocked Jesus as he hung on the cross. And uh, the crowd says to him, He trusted in God that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him now if he delights in him. Just after the, you know, come down from the cross and we'll believe in you, Mr. Messiah. Look, he trusted in God that God would deliver him. We'll let God deliver him now if he delights in him. And Calvin, in his commentary at that verse, says this simple word. A simple line, it is contrary to the nature of faith to insist on the adverb now. Because, you see, God did delight in him, in Jesus, and God did deliver him, just not on Friday. He waited till Sunday morning. That is our confidence and our hope and our faith in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, to whom else shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. We confess, Lord, that we love you. We have no alternative, even in the midst of bitter suffering and sorrow, than to go on trusting in you, following you, We are confident in your power and your love. We believe that you will deliver us. You promised, you said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. We do believe in you. We do expect you to come and take us to yourself one way or another. We don't insist that it's now, but we do pray that it will be soon in your name, amen.